This edition of The Wellness Prescription is brought to you by Healthy Planet, helping the people of the world to live healthy lives. Welcome, everyone. This is The Wellness Prescription on 105.9 The Region. I'm Dr. Claudia. Thank you all for joining me today. Anxiety. We've all experienced it, and it's not something that anyone wants to experience often. We struggle with how to avoid it. Our thoughts are, it's not normal. It's not healthy. The inner conversations are endless. My guest today is Dr. Ellen Vora, psychiatrist, acupuncturist, yoga instructor, and author of The Anatomy of Anxiety. What an honor it is to have you on the show today. Claudia, thank you so much for having me. Well, I was reading up a lot about you and I was really fascinated with your book and I learned that you take a functional medicine approach to mental health and you consider the whole person and imbalance as the root cause. What does this mean? So we're taught to think of mental health very much from the neck up and we really only think about it as the results of a genetic chemical imbalance. We think if we're depressed or anxious, it's our brain chemistry. The real evidence-based determinants of our mental health includes so much more than our brain chemistry. It includes how we're sleeping, how we're feeding ourselves, whether we're moving our bodies, all the way to more psycho-spiritual dimensions of our lives. Like, do we have community or ritual? Are we being of service? Do we have a sense of meaning and purpose in our lives? So a holistic approach is really thinking about the full portrait of our patient's lives, all of the different influences on our mental well-being. You're right. We think of mental health and mental wellness as just involving the mind. But what we are missing is the the link between how our body feels and how our brain is interpreting that. And I feel like that's a really important point to note for listeners who want to understand what drives our anxiety. That's exactly right. And our brain is constantly taking in all of this data from our bodies. Even when we focus on the all-important vagus nerve, this nerve that really is involved with relaxation and how our digestion is functioning, how our heart is beating, how we're breathing, that is a primarily afferent nerve, which is a fancy medical word for it's more than anything, receiving data from the body and communicating that back up to the brain. And so our brain is always listening and reporting on the state of affairs in our bodies. And if things are copacetic and functioning well in the physical body, we can feel calm. But if there's inflammation, imbalance, a blood sugar crash, if we're out of balance physiologically, then we can feel anxious. That's another really important point. If you're having a blood sugar spike and then a crash, that can trigger a feeling of anxiety. So when somebody understands this and knows how to eat to avoid that, we might actually be able to control an anxiety attack, you know, and then we can understand where that feeling is coming from. So you realize that you're not actually having a true anxiety attack. You're just responding to what your body is telling you and what your body's feeling. Yes. Something like a panic attack. So much of the time that actually has a physiologic basis to it. And we think of it as so mental that it's related to our stressors and the challenges that we're going through, but it's so much based in whether our body is getting tipped into a stress response. And something as seemingly benign as a blood sugar crash is a very common root cause of panic. And we're living in this Western world where our diets are built on a foundation of coffee drinks that are secretly milkshakes and rosé all day. And many of us are on the blood sugar roller coaster. And every time our blood sugar crashes, we're having a stress response as a reaction 
And that can feel identical to anxiety and even panic. In one of your recent posts, you comment that anxiety is the tone of the modern Western world. How did this happen? The way I navigate anxiety, I really think about false anxiety, true anxiety. We'll talk in a few minutes about what that even means. But I think these days we have a perfect storm of both. And we're very physically out of balance. We are drinking stronger coffee. Our food is more inflammatory. Our food is nutritionally bankrupt. Uh, we are on that blood sugar roller coaster. We're chronically sleep deprived. We're not moving our bodies. We don't get sunshine. We don't have nature. We don't have community. We're very physically out of balance. And we have very big existential worries whether that's climate change, whether that was everything we went through with the pandemic and all of this unmetabolized collective grief, division within our families. And we're processing all of that. And that also contributes. So the subjective feel of what it is to be alive in 2023, the pH of that stew that we're swimming in, it's a feeling of anxiety. And that's how many of us identify. We don't say I'm melancholic. We say we're, we're anxious. That's where we go to describe this feeling of unease. And is it okay to try to understand and separate our emotions? Because I feel that what we do is we kind of bank everything into one pool. And then the term that comes out of it is anxiety. I don't feel that that's exactly what it is. I feel like, you know, we're allowed to have different emotions throughout the day. You're allowed to have a day that's maybe not going as you planned or wished, um, but it's not necessarily anxiety. It could lead to that. But I feel like if we compartmentalize our emotions and just become aware of what we're feeling in that moment and maybe why, we can isolate it and then we can kind of heal from it a lot more quickly than just use this term anxiety to encompass everything. I love that question. And I think that the fact is we have come of age in an emotion phobic culture. So most of us are fairly emotion illiterate to begin with. In fact, the majority of people, they can't even identify anxiety. They would say, I know when I'm sad, happy or angry. And so to even be able to qualify that you're feeling anxious is already, you know, a little step above. But if we can expand our emotional literacy and the vocabulary to describe our different feelings and get much more granular, it's helpful because then even within that umbrella of, I feel anxious, we can understand that sometimes we're feeling apprehensive. Sometimes we're feeling uncomfortable with something uncertain. Other times we're actually feeling activated in an excited way. Maybe you're about to go give a talk, but also you're confident, but you're in a stress response because that's a good use of a stress response to help you have a little extra blood flow to your brain. And so we just want more granularity and the ability to describe the different qualities of anxiety. And that can help us not always have a narrative that this is a negative experience. I say yes a lot of the times to a lot of things because I want to be helpful. And I'm and I'm saying I'm using myself as an example, but I'm sure that every single one of us can relate. You want to be helpful. You want to be there for your friends and your family. You want to have a good time. You want to be balanced. You know, you don't want to miss out on certain things. So we say yes a lot when we really mean to say or should say no. Do you feel that this culture of this yes personality is contributing to that sensation of being anxious and and not getting giving ourselves the time to just be with our own thoughts and be aware of our emotions. So there's two different dimensions to this. And one is just the fast pace of modern life. We have all this technology at this point that enables us. We have something that tells us when to turn right when we're driving and something that helps us keep our 
calendars organized. And all of this really serves us and enables our life, but it does allow us to maximize and fill every pocket of our lives. And I think that when we're overscheduled and cluttered, we lack that spaciousness for the parasympathetic or relaxation tone, for our yin qualities to emerge, for creativity to emerge. So we have a lot of unmetabolized rest, leisure, and creativity that's just stuck in us. And then there's this other dimension, which is the way that we've been conditioned to people please, to say yes to people. And I think women get an even more whopping dose of that conditioning throughout our lives. I really came to understand this better when I came across Marshall B. Rosenberg's work, Nonviolent Communication, where he helped me understand that we have our true yes and our true no. And a lot of us go through our lives rather than saying, hey, this is a true yes, I'm going to say yes to this, or this is actually a true no for me, I'm going to say no. We give out our false yes. If you think you're, you're walking down the street, you bump into somebody that you haven't seen in years and it's, oh, hey, how are you doing? We should get together for coffee. But you feel your body contract. You feel tightness. You think to yourself, actually, I'm already stretched thin. I feel a bit overwhelmed in my life. This isn't a relationship that I need to invest in at this moment in my life. So there's a true no feeling in the body. But we steamroll right over that and we say, okay, great. How's next Thursday? We hand out our false yes. And it never ends well. You know, we either commit to something and then flake at the last minute, or we compromise our other priorities, or we just resent the other person. And if you think about it from their perspective, we would never want somebody to say yes to coffee with us if it meant that they would resent us for it. And so what we have to start practicing is pausing. It's a sacred pause. You listen to the communication, the language of the body. A yes feels expansive and warm, and a no feels like contraction, tightness, cold. And when we feel our body say no, we have to start practicing saying the word no. It's so true. We have to listen to our bodies' reactions to situations and conversations. Dr. Vora, when somebody presents to you and as a patient and says, you know, I'm having anxiety and I, I need help dealing with my anxiety. How do I handle the anxiety? How do I evaluate the sources of my anxiety? Where do you start? Always think about it in terms of what is their false anxiety and what is their true anxiety? So let me explain what that means. False anxiety, which is maybe a little bit of a harsh term, it can really think of it as avoidable anxiety. It's anxiety based in the physical body and it occurs when something has tipped our body into a stress response. And it can be something as straightforward as a blood sugar crash, sleep deprivation, we're inflamed, we're hungover, and it generates a stress response. And then we subjectively experience that as anxiety. But we would do well to identify that root cause, address it at that level, and eliminate all of this unnecessary suffering. And then true anxiety, on the other hand, is purposeful anxiety. It's not something to pathologize. It's not something to suppress. In fact, it's not what's wrong with us. True anxiety in many ways is what's right with us when we are able to viscerally connect to what is wrong in the world around us. And so I think of true anxiety as our inner compass. It's nudging us, asking us to slow down and get still and pay attention to what feels out of alignment. When I'm meeting somebody I'll start with the false anxiety. It's the low-hanging fruit. It's the quick wins. And also, I find that it can complicate our ability to access our true anxiety because it can feel similar. 
So when we're physiologically getting pinballed in every direction and we're all over the place, having stress responses, experiencing unnecessary suffering, that can muddy the air and it can make it really hard to see that clarion note of our true anxiety. So we start there, we go through an inventory, start to understand where is their body out of a balance. We'll address that, get them back into balance, eliminate a lot of unnecessary anxiety, and then that clears the air. And we can tune in and hear that inner compass saying, okay, here's where I'm out of alignment. Here's where I need a course correction in a more profound way. So it's not just about having a list of tools that you can say, okay, so I know people are journaling, they're evaluating their emotions all day. And I know we've discussed that some of us are not even in tune with the emotions we're feeling and why. It also involves, it should involve understanding what you've eaten in a day, what you ate the next day, how much sleep you're getting, how much food, high quality food you're consuming, because that essentially is going to affect how your mind feels. And I I feel like that's an important point to drive home because it's not just about, okay, I'm anxious. I'm anxious. There's something going on in my life. It's about what am I doing to contribute to making those events in my life not manageable? Because we're all going to deal with stresses and stressors that are going to cause us anxiety. But if our body is functioning optimally, we're, we're better you know, um, equipped to handle the stresses of everyday life. That's exactly right. I think of mental health as a reflection of healthy brain function in the context of getting our psycho-spiritual needs met. But that healthy brain function, it's a sine qua non. It's a without which not. So we need healthy brain function to have good mental health. And in modern life, that's no easy task. So many of us are so deeply physiologically out of balance because our modern food landscape, the blue light after sunset, our technology, our habits, we're not getting enough sleep, we're undernourished, we're inflamed, we're not moving our bodies, we're vitamin D deficient. It's hard to have a healthy body these days. So it really helps to have an inventory and say, yeah, these are the ways I'm probably out of balance and here's how I can slowly, gently start to put that back in into a state of balance. And importantly, we'll always have a story that goes along with our anxiety. Our brain is the consummate meaning maker. So if you're feeling anxious all of a sudden, kind of out of nowhere, your brain will swoop in and it will tell you a story to make sense of that sensation. It will say, ah, I'm anxious because of this thing going on at work or this interpersonal dynamic from the seventh grade. And that's actually our brain attempting to make sense of what is first and foremost a physical sensation. But there's always a kernel of truth to that story. So in order to not invalidate ourselves, it's sometimes helpful to say, okay, I'm anxious right now. I give myself permission to be anxious. I'm probably anxious partly because of this thing going on at work. And maybe I need a snack right now. And to just validate the stressor, but to understand that it might not be the whole reason for why we're anxious in that moment. When we come back, Dr. Vora's book, The Anatomy of Anxiety. This is The Wellness Prescription on 105.9 The Region. Stay with us. Have a question for Dr. Claudia? Call us at 416-335-1059. Tweet us at 105.9 The Region or email us info at 1059theregion.com. The Wellness Prescription with Dr. Claudia on 105.9 The Region. 
You're listening to 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to The Wellness Prescription. Before the break, Dr. Vora and I discussed anxiety and some of the contributing factors, as well as some remedies for feeling anxious. Dr. Vora, you have written a book called The Anatomy of Anxiety, and now we get to read firsthand or get to get to learn from you firsthand what we can do to help ourselves understand anxiety. And I have a big question, okay? Should we be able to feel anxiety? Can it serve a positive purpose in our lives? Yes, absolutely. And my book is really divided into two sections. And the whole first section about false anxiety or avoidable anxiety is really about reducing anxiety. It's eliminating unnecessary suffering. There's no greater truth or purpose to the false anxiety in our lives. If we're having a blood sugar crash and that's sending us into a panic attack, that doesn't serve us. That's just creating suffering. But the second half of the book is about our true anxiety. This is purposeful anxiety. And it's really not something that we want to suppress or silence or pathologize. When it comes to true anxiety, the central question is not, how can I stop feeling so anxious? It's, what is my anxiety telling me? And these are the ways that that experience of existential worry and unease, it serves us and it helps us tune in to the ways that we are out of alignment, to where we need to course correct, to where we need to change. And if we ignore that, we stay out of alignment quite a bit longer. And I think that it also has to do with ultimately our contribution that we're here to make. So who are we to stand in the way of that? We don't want to ignore our true anxiety. We actually want to get good at listening to it, honoring it, and letting it fuel purposeful action. The more aware we are of what we're feeling, what may be contributing to the feeling of being anxious, we can create the most perfect version of ourselves. Because I think that's uh, an important, another important point to make is that we're constantly learning f- about ourselves. And as we grow older and we mature, we're constantly changing. So that shouldn't be a source of anxiety. It should be an acceptance and understand that we're different. We have different needs as the years move on. Because I feel like just, you know, I'm talking about my demographic, women in my age group, a lot of my patients, we're all experiencing the same things and we change and our needs change and that causes anxiety. But it's normal to feel a bit anxious because that'll help us understand where we need to move on from. I mean, especially that transition. I could write a whole book just about the anxiety that comes with the perimenopausal, postmenopausal years. Impermanence is the biggest challenge that we struggle with as mortal beings. And there is change. I think a big part of our challenge with that is that we don't have good cultural rituals in modern life around grief, around embracing change and even in being in a surrendered and trusting relationship to uncertainty. So we have work to do around that. But I also want us to give ourselves grace because culturally we get so much messaging about what is our value as women. And it's so focused on youth and beauty and fertility and um, not on wisdom or on uh, our inherent worthiness of getting our needs met. And so I think we just need to reclaim it for ourselves. When it comes to understanding the physiology of our bodies and how it impacts our mind, because I know you use acupuncture and yoga as tools for healing this. How do they play a role in understanding and helping our bodies cope? For me, 
bringing that, integrating and bridging that to conventional Western medicine, it's very helpful to have this paradigm shift of understanding the body as an interconnected web, rather than thinking about it as, okay, these discrete organs, the way I was taught, you know, here's the kidney, kidney doctors will focus on the kidney, that's the purview of a nephrologist. And if you're a cardiologist, it's a separate issue. You know, if you're a psychiatrist, you don't even need to be thinking about the kidney. And you know, we're just thinking that the body is these different compartments that never talk to each other. And one of my favorite lines in my book is your gut and your brain are talking to each other, even if your psychiatrist and your gastroenterologist are not. And so we were very, we're so siloed as different disciplines in Western medicine. And it's ridiculous. The body is such a richly interconnected web. Um, and there's conversations and interrelationships happening between all the organs. And disciplines like Ayurveda, like Chinese medicine, have understood that for time immemorial. They've always understood these interconnections, that the liver is a system. It's not just one discrete organ. And then Chinese medicine, it's really good at creating balance. Whereas in Western medicine, we're really interested in symptom suppression and reacting. And so if somebody's already out of balance, we say, okay, let's suppress that symptom. We're not thinking about root cause resolution. And a lot of our interventions are so powerful that they create their own degree of imbalance. I think there's a time and a place for our conventional Western allopathic treatments. If things are already quite serious, you already got into a car crash, you already had a heart attack, you already have cancer, I'd say, thank goodness for Western medicine. The fact that it can respond so heroically is really useful. But so much of the ways that we are unwell, it's the stuff of chronic imbalance, chronic illness. And that's where conventional medicine is not only relatively ineffective, but we create, we exacerbate the problem. And so that's where something like Chinese medicine that is always thinking about yin yang and balance really shines because it's saying, okay, here's how you've gotten out of balance. It's understandable in modern life. Here's how we're going to gently, lovingly nudge you back into balance. I always love it as a cheat also in mental health because in psychotherapy, sometimes we can be inhibited or blocked and you put a few needles in and suddenly we're flowing and we're really starting to access the unconscious and our emotions start to move and that just makes the treatment so much more effective. I agree. I don't go a month. I, I have acupuncture once a month because we I have amazing acu traditional Chinese acupuncturists and I have acupuncture once a month and people often ask me, why do you see an acupuncturist? I say, well, I just do it for my overall wellness. I don't have to have one particular thing that I'm working on, but I know I have that feeling that when I'm done my session, I know that he or she has, you know, given me a few points that are just going to help to get things flowing and get my blood going and get that chi, which is the energy moving around. And that's part of the healing. Yeah, it's so good. You're lucky. <laughs> I think with yoga, it, it influences my practice in a million little ways. And I focus a lot on two in particular, the idea of non-harming, ahimsa, and truthfulness, satya. And I think that taking those two things, non-harming and truthfulness, and trying to apply them both in our lives 
in a way that honors both of them when they are sometimes contradictory in our lives um, is an art form. But a lot of the ways that we are interpersonally struggling comes down to how do we proceed in a way where we're standing in our authentic truth and we're also not doing harm. And I think that that's um, a really good framing for helping us know how to navigate our relationships. And then, of course, all things mindfulness. For me, it was yoga was my lifeline when I was in medical school and learning how to maintain equanimity in the face of challenge. And I needed that lesson because I was so easily triggered and so out of balance, always dropping into a victim mentality or dropping into a feeling of overwhelm or I can't do this. And yoga practice helped me have the experience of it's as simple as you're holding a difficult pose and your thighs are on fire and you really want to come out of it and you're yelling in your mind at this instructor. You're like, why isn't she letting us get out of this pose? But to maintain a slow and even breath through that gave me the muscle memory of saying, in the face of adversity, I can remain calm. I can watch my mind spin in a thousand different spirals and triggers, and I can come back to the breath, come back to myself, and maintain a through line to equanimity. That is just beautiful, and I feel relaxed just thinking about that. I want everybody to know that the book is incredible. And what do you, as, a, as the author of this book, what do you want your readers to extract from the book and what tools should they take with them? Let's say four highlights. One is that we do need to understand that our mental health is based on our brain health, which is in turn based on our physical body health. And then there's a lot of different, very actionable, realistic strategies for helping support physical health. And I think that it's more than just knowing that we need to be healthy. It's the behavioral change. It's how do we realistically do that in modern life? And then within that, we need to be sleeping. If we do nothing else to support ourselves physically, we need better sleep. And a lot of us want to do that and don't know how. So I really value the sleep chapter as giving people actionable tips to actually improve their sleep. And then I think the focus on community is essential because if we're really thinking about what creates a positive experience of fulfillment in our lives. It's relationships, it's transcendence, it's love. And we get that in our relationships. And so how to build community into our lives and to prioritize that. And the last piece is, it's a little bit outside the purview and my training as a psychiatrist, but I do want people to at least give themselves permission to seek around questions of spirituality. And where they arrive is, you know, everybody has their own truth there and it's all okay. But I don't want people to miss the opportunity to just ask themselves those questions. Because I find in my own life and for many of my patients, opening up to the possibility that something vastly beyond our comprehension is occurring here is a softening. It's a salve to our anxiety because our anxiety at the very end of the day pertains to that inherent fragility of going through life in a human body, the fact that we will one day die, the fact that we will lose the people we love, that's a pretty intolerable truth to live with. But when we open up to more of a spiritual understanding of this existence, it softens those edges. It makes loss a little bit less absolute. I find it helps us maintain some relationship to trust and surrender to the unfoldings of the events of our lives. That is just beautiful. And 
I think I got all of those four points out of the book after I was done with it. I cannot thank you enough for joining me today. I learned so much and I hope our listeners did as well. But if people want to learn more about you, purchase the book, how can they do that? Sure. I'm pretty active on Instagram. I'm at Ellen Vora MD. And then my website is ellenvora.com. And the book is my life's work in about 250 pages. And that's the anatomy of anxiety. Amazing. And you can always find me on Instagram at Claudia underscore Machiala or my website, ClaudiaMachiala.com. That's my show for this week. If you missed it, go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, and of course, Audible. I'm Dr. Claudia. Thank you all for listening. I hope this helps you live your best life. The Wellness Prescription was brought to you by Healthy Planet. Order online at healthyplanetcanada.com or go online to find a location nearest you.